Welcome to the GoTo Podcast. Each episode covers the brightest and boldest ideas from the world's leading experts in software development. Tune in for practical lessons, compelling theories, and plenty of inspiration. GoTo gathers the brightest minds in the software community to help developers tackle projects today, plan for tomorrow, and create a better future. Stay up to date with the latest in tech through GoTo's top-rated events held online and in person in cities like Amsterdam, London, Copenhagen, and Chicago, and by subscribing to the GoTo Conference's YouTube channel, where you can find thousands more high-quality dev talks. Learn more at gotopia.tech. Hello and welcome. Today we will talk about building micro front ends, and I've invited Luca here. Welcome to the show, Luca. Hi, thank you for having me. So my, my name is Lukas Domen. I'm a senior consultant from InnoQ, and I'm also uh, very interested in front ends and how to build good architectures for web applications, especially big ones. Um, but Luca, maybe you can introduce yourself for a second. Sure. Uh, my name is Luca Mezzalira. Uh, I'm uh, Italian, but based in London. I'm a principal solution architect uh, in uh, AWS. Uh, and in the last uh, um, seven years, I explored uh, the microfrontends topic uh, uh, quite, ex quite extensively, uh, not only uh, writing a book, but also uh, building uh, uh, multiple applications and helping uh, customers uh, to implement this architecture pattern uh, across different industries, uh, seeing different challenges and uh, figure out how to overcome them. So it was a very interesting journey so far. So I hope that we'll continue also for the future. Awesome. So uh, micro frontends is already a word where different people have like different uh, ideas what it means, right? But before we get into that, I want to start with your motivation, right? So why are you uh, looking into this topic? What are the problems that you've seen that led you to Uh, exploring micro frontends. Sure. So um, seven years ago, I was working for a company called uh, The Zone. It's a um, OTT streaming platform. Imagine, for instance, Netflix for for, for sport. Uh, we our focus was mainly uh, live content. Uh, it was available in multiple countries that have different needs. And uh, we started to have uh, um, to, to grow significantly, moving from tens to hundreds of people. And the tech department obviously was growing as well. Um, the challenge we had is that we don't only develop uh, developed content for web, but also for living room devices, so set of boxes, consoles, smart TVs, and and therefore we need uh, um, a variety of, of teams that could handle all these the, these challenges. And moreover, the team were distributed. Uh, in, on front end, I work in the past uh, on several projects that require tens, if not even hundreds of people working together for delivering uh, a project. But when you have a monolithic code base, uh, sometimes you have some challenges that are mainly due to the fact that uh, there are some decisions that are uh, pertinent and made at some point in time, but then reverting or changing those decisions across the entire code base is a challenge. And on, instead, what we were seeing on the back end is that um, there, were, there were distributed architecture that allowed different people to have a certain um, modularity that, and, and flexibility that we didn't have on the front end. So back in the days, I was uh, asking myself, Can we figure out a way to have the same flexibility of microservices, for instance, uh, on the front end? And that's basically where everything started. 
So, so one of the things that I um, think is the most important part of of um, micro uh, microservices and both micro frontends is uh, the idea of independent deployments, right? So the the idea that uh, a team can decide for themselves that they can uh, de deploy something without the other teams needing to do something about it. Maybe you can talk a bit about that topic as well, because I think it's very important for our uh, conversation today. One of the characteristics of distributed system, like if we think about microservices uh, as well as micro frontends, is exactly what you described. So the fact that are independent artifacts. And that is not only helpful from a technology perspective, but also from an organizational perspective. One thing that I have noticed in the past is that very often, people forget that architecture is tightly linked with the organization structure. And that is something we cannot forget. Um, Conway's law, for instance, states that we usually design our architecture uh, or our system based on how our company is structured. That is something that was stated in, in the 70s and is still very actual, in my opinion, and we need to take into account that. The fact that we want to have a um, distributed system, it means that we need to reduce the external dependencies for team because otherwise it's creating more overhead in coordinating the effort. That it is not only for independent deployments, but is also for sharing libraries and many other things that we are used to do when we, we deal with uh, certain type of projects. Now, specifically on independent deployments, I think um, is quite key that we are trying to uh, use best practices that we have learned on the microservices world and apply, if possible, on the front end for um, defining uh, some boundaries around the microphone 10, input and output, for instance, uh, and then uh, having the possibility to independently deploy at, at our own piece uh, without the need of massive coordination. That doesn't mean it is, it is always possible. It means that for vast majority of the time, uh, a team day to day is that I'm independent. I can do, I can take my decision. I can go ahead and deploy multiple times per day or uh, every, every day, whatever is the cadence that they prefer. However, there are certain situations where, uh, for instance, when there are features that are across multiple, um, domains of, of our application, or uh, we have a massive change, like, I don't know, a design system that's changing drastically, we need to, to uh, uh, do some coordination across team that is inevitable and is going to happen. But if we can reduce uh, in, uh, I don't know, less than, than five or, or 10 times per year, then we will have a big success because every team is independent for vast majority of the year and they will be able to uh, uh, take their own decision and moving forward uh, with uh, uh, what really matters at the end for a company. So generating value for the users because we are often forgetting that uh, we are here not only for write uh, amazing code, uh, but uh, also for generating value for our customers. Uh, and that for me is uh, uh, the key thing that we need to, to focus on, especially Nowadays, where applications are becoming more complex and users are, requir are requiring, uh, let's say, specific features and, and uh, uh, more rich feature, if you want. Um, and in this case, I think uh, 
modularize our architecture uh, is a key characteristics for uh, any application for the future. Yes. So one thing that you also outlined in your book is that, of course, um, splitting up your system into a, a lot of different systems comes at a cost, right? Like it's not free to, to split up your system. You need to integrate it. And we will talk about that at length in this conversation, right? So you have to do a lot of decisions. So where do you come down on the decision on when to do the split? Do you think you should always like start with a distributed system like a micro front-end microservices system? Or do you think uh, there is a good reason to start with a monolith and split it up later? Where do you think uh, you come down on yeah, that? Yeah, let, let's start stating that uh, I don't believe uh, uh, distributed systems uh, are a silver bullet at all. Uh, I would say that that is more a way to solve, um, I would say, an organizational challenge uh, and not only a technical challenge, probably mainly an organizational challenge than a technical one. Uh, I, I think there is a lot of value uh, nowadays working with monolithic architectures or modular monolith, even better, as was described several times by Sam Newman in uh, uh, one of uh, the uh, free books that he have written, mm -hmm. uh, building <laughs> microservices and uh, um monolith to, to microservices. Uh, I think in, in general, the idea is you need to really think about your context and find which is the right architecture pattern for uh, what you need to achieve. Sometimes for a startup, having uh, um, a quick turnaround, it, it makes way more sense than starting with microservices or microfrontends because you don't even know if Uh, your product uh, will uh, reach prime time. And therefore, it's very, very important that when we uh, think about the architecture pattern to implement, we think about what are our priorities. And often for startups, it's validating their assumption or idea, how many customers are interested to that, and then set up the code and the architecture in a way that the modularity uh, characteristics that we discussed before could be uh, leveraged at scale. Because in reality, uh, if we think about architectural characteristics, I think uh, modularity is one that um, we, we, we spoke about that for several years. And in, I created the mental model in my head that you can reach a different level. You can have at the code level, you can have the infrastructure level, you can have at uh, the, the architecture level and the organization level. And those three things doesn't have to be achieved uh, in the first iteration that you can start with the monolithic architecture with a modular code base and slowly but steady move into a more granular uh, modularity on the infrastructure and then slowly but steady you move towards the uh, also the architecture that I believe is the last phase where you are not you have like modularity on the code on the infrastructure on the architecture therefore uh, the organization based on the assumption that we design our uh, our architecture based on organization structure if that is true it means that you can achieve some of the benefit Uh, that you can have also with, with distributed systems, also with monolithic code base. However, require more discipline and require a certain coordination that you might, uh, you might not have, uh, to think about when you go further about, uh, the, um, abstraction that you are talking about. So I think also with, Uh, a monolithic code base, you can achieve some benefit or, mo or modularity um, at the code base level. And then that will be your foundation for then moving towards a more distributed system. Very nice. Okay. So um, after talking a bit about the motivation, I think we should um, 
shift our focus a bit to micro frontends and away from microservices. Um, so in your book, uh, you wrote that there are basically um, two big categories of doing micro frontends, and this also will lead us to what exactly that means, right? Um, so can you explain to us um, why, how you can split your application into either horizontal or vertical splits and um, what are like the benefits of those two approaches? When I started my journey uh, in, in, this, in this world of microphone tents, obviously I struggled to find some content available online and there weren't many companies doing that. So I had to figure out and create some mental models that would help me and help Uh, other developers working with me uh, to visualize what we were talking about. And I created what I call the decisions framework in 2019. That basically uh, is one of the decisions is the one that you mentioned. So the vertical versus horizontal split. Um, and that is the first decision. So uh, when you are approaching microphone tents, you need to understand uh, how granular you want to go. That doesn't mean you cannot mix and match both. You can definitely mix and match both, but there are certain situations where uh, one makes more sense than the other one. So an horizontal split is when you have um, multiple teams working together inside the same view. So if you reach an home page of, of a website and you realize that there are multiple teams working on that because your organization is quite large and uh, you you need to you have multiple domains that the on page is covering or you have uh, by the type of, of system a certain level of granularity and reusability on microphone tents that is definitely an architecture that they encourage classic example for instance uh, think about uh, an observability dashboard where you have multiple uh, elements that uh, can in, in an on page correspond to I don't know the throughput uh, that you have or the error rates and other things. So those are multiple domains that are contributing to provide a, a final view. And those domains, obviously, uh, are very likely to be handled by different teams. So in order to aggregate that, you can use a, an horizontal split where uh, you collect different uh, metrics for provide a view to the final user. On the other side, we have vertical split where instead a team is responsible for one view or multiple views. Depend, depends from uh, uh, the type of application that, that you have. So for instance, if we continue with the example of the observability dashboard, You might, uh, you, you maybe, uh, you go in, in the homepage and you select error rates as a, a metric that you want to deep dive and understand better how the things are going. So at that level there, uh, you can open a, a new view that, that is owned by the team responsible for the error rates that goes, uh, more in deep about the visualization, the charts that you want to display, and maybe you can do some queries and search and other things. So in that case, you can have a, a mixed approach where you have a team that is responsible for the vertical split of the application and another one, uh, sorry, and the same team is responsible for the smaller view or the snapshot of the view or the error rate that contribute on the homepage. So as you can see, you can have, uh, uh, let's say, both. Obviously, those um, those approaches have uh, different pros and cons. In horizontal split, I have seen um, uh, more and more people that are investing on tooling for providing capabilities 
capabilities for the team that is, uh, let's say, rendering just a portion of the view, um, some traction to understand if the microphone time that they developed is working. And also there are some challenges around uh, the organizational structure because imagine that you have, uh, you're responsible for just one microphone time in the view that is composed by, I don't know, five microphone times. Let's assume this example. How do you ensure that your microphone tent is working? I have seen companies that are decoupling the teams and having a Q&A session that is owned by the Q&A team um, for, um, uh, for the, the making sure that the application is working at a whole. And uh, on the other side, I have seen uh, teams that instead uh, are creating tools for uh, making sure that the application uh, or the microphone tent is uh, working uh, with other microphone tent in conjunction with other microphone tents, and therefore the investment around um, ephemeral environments, where uh, in that case, basically you spin up uh, a snapshot of the system, maybe retrieving other microphone tents from a more stable version, like staging environment, for instance, and your microphone tent is uh, working alongside. But as you can see, there are more consideration to take into account when we work with an horizontal split. In a vertical split, um, it's more likely that uh, you feel comfortable if you have developed um, single page applications, for instance. That is usually the scenario where if you are capable to develop or you have experience on, on develop, uh, developing a single page application, that is potentially easier to pick up microphone tents because at the end you are going to be responsible for a portion of the system. You can use the whole JavaScript ecosystem without any any problem. And moreover, uh, I think is a, a nice way to ramp up with this idea of microphone tests. Obviously, it depends what is your maturity level inside the team and what you are trying to achieve. But you have seen successful implementation of uh, vertical split as well as horizontal split. Mm -hmm. Very good. So um, one thing that I noticed um, in a lot of conversations is that there are people that have different ideas what single page application means. So uh, I think what you're referring to here is a, a rich client application with a lot of JavaScript maybe written in React or Angular or something like that, right? That, that's correct. So for me, a single page application is an application that downloads just once all the package that needs. Uh, and then uh, the only round trip that is doing to the server is for consumer some APIs. Then obviously you can argue that nowadays there are people using lazy loading and different lazy loading different chunks of, of JavaScript. But in the original concept of single page application, uh, we, the idea was we were moving away from the fact that every time that the user was changing the, the uh, endpoint was refreshing the entire page. We were downloading instead in single page application, you download the entire package uh, and then you um, at the end you are going to have uh, the entire application sitting on your browser uh, and then you consume just APIs. Yeah, but but I think like th there's still like a lot of um, movement there, especially with things like Hotwire and and technologies like that, where the line is not so easy to draw between server side rendering and s single page applications. But I think we have a, a rough picture of what we mean, right? Yes. Like it's a very client driven application, um, probably with routing on the client side and not 
on the edge or on the server, right? It could be uh, either way. So the um, interesting part of uh, the vertical split, for instance, if we want to go ahead with that that uh, topic, is that the, usually the routing part could happen on the client side or could happen uh, at the uh, edge side. Uh, I have seen working on, on both ways. I think if I think architecturally speaking, having at the edge side uh, provides a nice decoupling between uh, the container of these microphone tens that usually is called application shell and uh, um, and the routing mechanism that it if it, it is on the client side it, it might be non-trivial um, because there are few things that you need to take into account at, at the end you are consuming vast majority of the time uh, an endpoint for retrieving uh, the catalog of microphone tests that are available and then uh, you uh, you use some logic that you add in, in your code for uh, for the application shell the challenge you have if you do on the client side and you you're not paying too much attention on decoupling in a nice way uh, this catalog of elements with the mechanism that does the routing uh, is the fact that uh, you need to deploy every time the application shell alongside some microphone tests that I have seen as an anti-pattern because Basically, you are creating a coupling between the container of your microphone tents and the microphone tents itself that represent a business domain. If you do on this on the edge side instead or server side, it depends if you want to go up to the origin. Uh, the, the nice thing is that you, when there is a request from the, the client, the logic running on the server is uh, just retrieving the right artifacts, and that opens up to possible solutions like canary releases, blue-green deployment, or even strangler pattern, if you want, uh, for migrating um, the, an existing legacy application or monolithic code base towards a new microphone tens architecture. Mm -hmm. Okay, but uh, before we get into that, I would say let, let's uh, first look into the app shell thing. I think most people are not aware what exactly that means. Can you explain what an app shell is? Sure. So the application shell is the first thing in uh, um, a fat client, as it's called, or rich uh, client-side application uh, that, that you usually download. So when you type your websmysite.com, the first thing that you download in that case is an application shell. Application shell is unaware of the business domain or it should be as much as possible because that is a common part and and what is responsible for is responsible for loading the microphone tents or and uh, routing the, the URL basically on where the user wants to go and then load the right microphone tents associated to that. It's also responsible for deep linking that usually comes uh, out of, um, uh, comes for free out of the box when, when we are implementing the application shell and uh, is usually used either with an horizontal or vertical split. So the application shell, when we do on the, on the client side, we can decide to go uh, with horizontal or vertical or both, as we said before. Uh, the um, the interesting interesting part is that the very uh, light implementation. There are several technologies that you can uh, handle that. Uh, in my humble opinion, usually if you are capable to keep that uh, as framework agnostic as possible, uh, it opens up also the possibility in the future to evolve the microphone tens without the coordination uh, of uh, having the application shell that is holding you to experiment or try new things. So let's dive into that topic as well, because I think uh, one thing that I've come across a lot is the question, can I use um, different frameworks for different parts of my um, uh, micro front end, or should I use one uh, 
the same one for everyone, right? Like, should I use Angular and React mixed and some use an Angular and some are React and or should I always use React for all of them, right? Not looking at Angular React right now, right? But um, where do you see uh, both in the vertical and in the horizontal split with App Shell, how do you see uh, how you can do handle that? I think not only for, uh, despite the architecture pattern that you're going to take on Microphone Tens, I would say uh, that that is a misconception that uh, was raised by the community for several years by now. And the, the, the challenge I see, and usually is this example that I made. So imagine that you have a single page application. Technically speaking, you can mix React and Angular. And I can I remember back in the days when uh, React came out, there were some experiments on that using uh, the React library as a UI and the rest uh, of Angular framework for for the man management of the, the uh, state management and uh, the rest of, of the application. Now, despite you can, it doesn't mean that you have to. Therefore, um, in my opinion, there are certain situations where having multiple frameworks uh, might help with microfrontends. So when you are migrating, for instance, from a legacy application to a, a new one, or if you are migrating an application from an older version of the framework to a new one, what you are, what you want to do instead of going stealth mode for month and then deliver something in front of your customer is taking a vertical of your application and start to iterate on that, deploying production alongside the uh, previous application and, and start to generate value for the users because we are going back to the real scope why we are developing code. Um, and that that's where I can see for a certain period of time, because I know that is a migration, uh, a mix and match of framework. Otherwise, um, ah, yes. And the, another option could be when you are acquiring new companies. So if the, your uh, company is acquiring another one and you want to immediately see the value uh, that of your investment in uh, inside your, um, let's say, brand, inside your umbrella, you can do that and you can easily have another, let's say, technology that is developed uh, by the other company that is living alongside your, your application. That is another situation. Overall, I discourage this practice unless there are strong let's say, reasoning uh, behind that, because obviously it's going to have an impact on uh, your users. And at the end of the day, we know that for certain type of workloads, think about, for instance, e-commerce, uh, the first time uh, first um, time byte um, is quite important uh, because it could, uh, let's say, uh, generate more revenue or not. And I know that sometimes it could uh, seem silly, uh, what I'm saying, that uh, one second could generate millions in revenue. But in reality, we have uh, quite a lot of companies that uh, prove uh, that th that is true. And therefore, it's very important that we uh, optimize our uh, application, despite the architecture that we're using, without penalizing our uh, customers. Yeah. Uh, even though I agree, like, uh, we should not go to a multi-framework solution, right? Because uh, we are downloading way too much data and and it will also be complicated for things like server-side pre-rendering and stuff like that. Um, I think that a lot of people that are doing architectures for the front end are paying um, not enough attention to the um, fact that you already mentioned of migrations, right? If we are going into a situation where we need to do a framework update that is a breaking change, for example, and we are forced to do it across our entire application, then we are 
paying all the um, costs that we have for a monolith, right? Because then we need to update all at once and that might be costly. And the same goes for like, if you uh, remember something like Backbone.js, that was the first framework I built a single page application with. Nobody would, would, would use it today, I would say, right? And uh, sometimes those frameworks go out of style and we don't cannot uh, say which one will uh, maybe be end of life by the people behind it, right? It's not very... Um, uh, likely that React and Angular will just disappear, right? Because there are so many applications written in it, but we should at least like keep it in the back of our minds that this might happen and that we have a strategy if that occurs and especially for the um, framework updates, uh, the breaking changes uh, will be uh, something you should pay attention to, in my opinion. Yeah, I fully agree. Also because often we need to, to think about if uh, technically architects and developers are uh, more keen to work with modularity, the business instead is, uh, 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 wants to work with agility. So they want to drift the direction in the way that they want. And if we link agility with modularity, basically you have exactly what we are talking about here. So you have the possibility to take the drift of the organization towards your architecture and therefore your code and shift the way how you are working today uh, for having a better future tomorrow. Uh, that is, let's say, probably the, 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 the key thing that an architect should do, trying to map the business characteristics towards what we are trying to build. But yeah, I agree with you in, in your uh, mindset and approach. So one other uh, integration method, so AppShell would be one integration method, right? Uh, one other thing, uh, thing you brought up on the client side, horizontal split uh, was module federation, uh, which is a feature from Webhack. Can you explain what what that does on a high level, right? Not on a code level, because that's always a bit uh, bad on a format like this one. Uh, what it means and what it does. Yeah, sure. So module federation is an official Webpack plugin uh, that is uh, available from Webpack 5. Uh, the interesting part that, that it does is, is not mainly for microfrontends. The idea of behind micro, micro, federation is the fact that is a, a transport layer for bundles. Uh, and, uh, and that opens up, uh, quite a lot of opportunities, not only on the client side, but also if you think about cloud or server side, you can use, still use module federation, no problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The interesting bit of, uh, for microfrontends is that, um, if I talk about the transport layer for bundles, the bundles could be an independent piece of code. And therefore, it resigned very well with the console microfrontends. And that means potentially I can use module federation for composing my microfrontends because what it does is exactly this. I take a bundle that is independent and I, uh, I let's say, um, load inside another application. That is exactly what we want to do with microfrontends. The other uh, great thing that module federation does is taking care about the dependencies because one of the challenges you have when when you when you do when you deal with uh, let's say your own implementation of microfrontends is how I can make sure that every everyone is using React 15 or React 16 or the same version of a framework or library whatever. Module Federation abstracts that for you, but goes even, uh, um, let's say, further, providing you the possibility to, um, let's say, create a scope around the same library with different versions. So if uh, a team is, uh, wants to use, I don't know, Moment.js with an older version compared to the rest of, of, the, of the application, they can do that without clashing uh, because the scope is different. And that is another great functionality of, of uh, Module Federation. Um, um, I think 
the interesting bit is very foundational. Uh, it's going to a level where, yes, you are uh, tied with Webpack 5. There is a version for Webpack 4 that is, doesn't have the full fledge of features that I described. There is another one uh, on ESPL that I know that is, uh, uh, is about to be built or uh, in progress. And there are other uh, open source frameworks that are doing something similar without using Webpack. But the idea, the overall idea of creating a way that um, abstract the loading of, of uh, a specific module, of specific bundle, is pretty good. Because the, the other thing we often forgot to say about Module Federation is because it's a Webpack plugin, we can mix and match with the rest of the uh, plugins available in the ecosystem. Therefore, uh, if instead, if Module Federation generates too many chunks of your JavaScript, you can configure it in a way that uh, instead you have just, uh, let's say, one chunk or smaller chunk, or you want to set a certain budget per chunk. Every chunk has to be at least 15 kilobytes, stuff like that. So you have a, a, a great flexibility and is solving a quite peculiar project uh, problem of microfrontends. Um, but does it mean that the uh, build of those different uh, subsystems uh, or different micro front ends uh, are bound to each other or are they still like independently buildable? So can I just build uh, the component that does the product view, for example, or is that not possible anymore? It's totally possible uh, because uh, the whole point of module federation is moving away from the concept I need to centralize the build of my uh, elements, I can have, I can use module federation. There are two concepts that are key. The host, that is the container of, of uh, a, let's say, another bundle, and the remote, that is what is loaded inside the host. The beauty of this approach is that uh, you can create multiple applications, completely independent, that, that, that are living inside their own world, and then bundle, uh, load them together at runtime. And the, all the loading part is handled by module federation. So you just need to deploy, for instance, let's assume that you're using an S3 bucket with a cloud from the distribution in front of it. You, you deploy your microphone ten, tens of times per day in S3. And every time that application shell is load, is loading is go uh, with module federation is going to load the latest version of your microphone 10. The beauty of this is you're completely independent despite, uh, you're using Webpack that I know sometimes we think always, oh, we, we centralize everything with, with Webpack. Mm -hmm. Okay, but all we need to uh, um, align on is the build tool that we are using, right? So we are bound to the same version of Webpack for all uh, micro front ends, Webpack right? 5, yeah, correct. Yes, okay. Mm -hmm. But uh, not Webpack 5.110 or something, right? No, no, it's just Webpack 5. Okay. It should be cool. retro-compatible. I didn't try that, but I, um, I <laughs> never, to be honest, I never heard anything like that. Okay, cool. Okay, so a second approach that you outline in the book uh, is uh, using iframes for a horizontal split. So I think a lot of people, uh, when they hear iframes, they think this is like an outdated technology that nobody uses today. Uh, what's your take on that? I agree in certain contexts. In others, it's solving quite a few problems. So iframes, yes, are true or not new, but are the safest option that we have for create strong boundaries for our and have a bit of control for our code. So if for instance, you have you acquire a company and the code that uh, maybe is all jQuery with uh, uh, other things that you want to uh, put inside your brand new mm -hmm. microfrontends application, <laughs> but you don't want to have the headache to go through the code and build or anything. You 
take the bill that is available currently in, in the application, you move in your server and you use an iframe to, to basically protect the rest of your application. That is a nice way. Um, there is uh, a microfrontends framework called Luigi framework that was created by SAP that is using iframes for I- isolating the different contexts. And usually what they do is... Uh, um, um, using this iframe that there are not many per view, there are three or four, uh, and and they're using that because they they are sure that who is developing the code is not going to clash with the rest, and they provide a set of facilities in this Luigi framework for communication part, retrieving uh, the authentication on SAP and stuff like that. The other option that they have seen uh, iframes very useful is on the security side. Because there are certain, uh, let's say, uh, industries that require strong set of securities, and with iframe you can fulfill them very easily. Uh, and therefore, I agree. For there are several drawbacks on iframe that are quite heavy, uh, and so on and so forth. But there are situations where iframes can be uh, a valuable option. The other thing is currently the TC39 is exploring a proposal that is called um, Shadow Realms. Uh, they changed the name recently, and the idea is basically having a glorified iframe, but without all the burden and and the problems that we have with the iframe. So you don't have to have the full structure of the wind of the object and so on, but you have like a light iframe uh, with all the benefits of create boundaries around your code. Yeah, so I've never seen anyone uh, use iframes to integrate within one company, right? But I think uh, especially using it between companies, if the, if you are integrating something from a different company, then iframes are a very good solution. I think a good example for that is uh, Google Maps, that uh, everyone invo- uh, uses iframes to uh, integrate Google Maps, right? They don't realize it because they put in a script script source, but it's a good way to, to uh, really, ha- for security reasons, split out this application and do- doesn't give, don't give it access to the entire uh, DOM that you have, right? But I, I would say it's a rather um, unintuitive way to integrate within your company where you have higher levels of trust, I would say. Yes, uh, it's true. But uh, very often in large organizations, I have seen used iframes despite there are nowadays other options for security reasons. So, so one other thing uh, are uh, web components. And I think this is also one of those words uh, that where uh, people are not entirely sure what it means. So um, can you explain what the, the pillars of uh, web components are? Yeah, web components are an API standard that is available for uh, developers to create components that are compatible with uh, nowadays vast majority all of the browsers if not vast majority of them uh, and uh, and is providing uh, some utilities like um, uh, custom components and uh, um, uh, shadow shadow dom and uh, those two things are quite key for my front end. So the, the custom component is possibility to create your own component uh, that contains your, your code. And you, the, the interesting bit, you can have in light DOM or in shadow DOM, depends which path you're going to take. And uh, the main difference is the shadow DOM basically is completely decoupled from uh, the main DOM element. And that means basically that you can, um, uh, for instance, have uh, also some duplication on classic example, CSS style, they are not going to override the one that are available or be overridden by the one of the, the application, what the application is using. So the shadow DOM is basically like uh, a, um, a nice uh, black box that is preventing that uh, someone can, can access it. Uh, 
the I think the interesting part of, of web components is that nowadays, if you're using them, uh, you, you are compatible with any framework. So if you are doing an, an effort for building some uh, elements with with the uh, web components, then you know that if to, today's React and tomorrow will be Vue.js, you will be able to uh, reuse that part of the code that is that is great. In fact, I uh, also in my book, I warmly recommend them if it's possible to use them um, in for creating design systems, because that basically will allow you to reuse portion of your uh, code and your your application, despite the underlying uh, UI interf- uh, UI framework could change. And that for me, in, main, in, in my head, creates also this concept of evolutionary architecture that web components can, can provide. Um, the only challenge I have seen so far with web components uh, for microfrontends is that often developers are overlapping this concept of components and microfrontend. Uh, and that is a risk because sometimes y- you might uh, hear people say, oh, yes, we are using uh, microfrontends and we have uh, a gazillion of microfrontends in, in, uh, in the same view, but in reality, they're using components. And a, a rule of thumb that I um, try to rationalize uh, lately in uh, uh, probably was towards the end of, of the book was trying to figure out how I can explain easily the difference between components and uh, uh, microfrontends. And the idea is, uh, I think the, the key here is the extensibility factor. If you think about the component, usually the container uh, is providing some context for the component to behave. In that case, you pass maybe, I don't know, the labels, the localization, the type of behavior you expect from the component, and so on and so forth. In the microphone tent, you define the input and the output. Worst case scenario, you can inject an event emitter or, let's say, something that's very, uh, let's say, not domain related, but the microphone tends own is narrative. He knows how to, to build, he knows how to render, he knows everything that, that uh, how to behave, but it doesn't have to be instruct from, from the container. Therefore, there is no leak uh, of domain outside the microphone tent. And that is for me the key difference to understand if we're dealing with components of microphone tents. Yeah. But you already mentioned uh, the, the um, problem with CSS, right? So if I uh, take the um, solution with client-side approach with an app shell, then uh, I might have collisions in CSS class names, for example. So uh, one approach would be to use a Shadow DOM, as you already outlined. Are there any, uh, any other approaches that we can use uh, for um, yeah, getting out of trouble there? Yeah, and another idea uh, that is, uh, let's say, quite simple to implement, despite you're using web components or not, is using prefix. So if you are if if you divide uh, the, the work that you're doing uh, in multiple teams, every team might have a name or a domain that they're representing. So if they prepend the um, the style, the class name that they want they want to use uh, with their own unique name, they can then uh, have a uniqueness on their class name. So there isn't the risk that there will be a clash, uh, and uh, and that is usually one thing. For instance, uh, I was using um, Material UI for a demo and uh, uh, for my, using my frontends, and I have to make sure that they didn't clash together because it was Material UI across the entire application, but with different uh, parameter and everything. So I don't want 
want that uh, the same style or class name was uh, that was rendering one way uh, in, in one part of the application could clash with uh, with another one. Therefore, in that case, using prefixes, uh, I was able to uh, decouple basically uh, the, the the two styles. And despite I might have two uh, styles that by default would clash together in the application shell, they weren't clashing in uh, uh, in reality because there was a prefix that was let's say creating uniqueness on on those styles. Um, so one thing I'm, I, I wondered when I read the book and also I wondered again now um, is uh, how do you handle things like pattern libraries? So if I want to do something like a shared style between all the uh, um, applications, right? They have like certain amount of code, uh, a certain amount of styling that is shared between everyone and a certain amount that is like very specific to one part of the application, right? So how do you handle that both in Shadow DOM and in uh, something like BAM that you just mentioned? What, what uh, How yeah. do you do that? So uh, usually in Shadow DOM, you have less problems because are encapsulated. So in that case, you can take their, your own decisions and uh, every uh, component that won't clash with each other because it's not even in the same, if you want, scope of the application. In the other side, I think with, with uh, BAM is, is uh, the prefixes that allows you, BAM basically provide you a more granular way to describe the uh, the element that you are styling and going more uh, up to, to, to a certain granularity that makes more difficult to have, uh, uh, let's say, uh, Redundancy on names, but if that happens, the prefix uh, strategy it helps a lot because then at the end of the day, if you're using the same button but with different, if, let's say, styles or uh, parameter uh, that you want to use, you can do that without any clash because you are going to basically create, uh, uh, let's say, your your way to handle one thing, and then you can supplement, as you described before, uh, with your own style for that specific portion of the application that require different styles. So you can you can really do mix and match with just this simple uh, implementation. Uh, so maybe this is a bit too deep into the technical part, but if I imagine that you have a page that consists of the app shell and then three uh, sub uh, Parts that are from different that are split, right? That are different parts of the application, um, and each of them uh, is uh, has its own shadow DOM. So, do you include like the basic styling as one CSS file in each uh, of the shadow DOMs and the app shell, and then add specific styling to the subparts, or how do you do that in practice? Usually, so you uh, so if you go if you go on in the path that you include all the base element, obviously it's going to um, Let's say have uh, more is more kilobytes to download for the users, uh, but you guarantee that are uh, completely dependent. So potentially, if tomorrow uh, one of the team is using an older version of the styles that uh, we, you will still provide, uh, let's say, a, an independent element that can be updated at some point. The moment that you start to share anything style, code, whatever, across those three independent parts, then you have a risk that there is a runtime error that you didn't pick up in your environment or in dev environment because it potentially could be different. So ideally, you need to understand if that is the, uh, let's say, trade-off that you want to take or if you if you create more, uh, you spend more energy and more effort for making sure that everything that's loaded around time is not going to blow up in front of the customer. Mm-hmm. Okay. It's up to you to decide where you want to, to spend your effort. It could be yeah. as simple as, okay, I have a bit of duplication. It's 10, key, 10, 10 kilobyte more. 
it's not the end of the world or no, that 10 kilobyte, I really need them. And therefore I need to find a way to optimize my uh, pipeline to make sure that I'm not going to uh, create issues at runtime. So one thing that we did in one project was that the base style was available versioned at a URL and you could uh, use it in the different parts of the application and then you can uh, take care, um, take advantage of caching, right? So as, at least if everyone is on the same version at that point in time, you only download it once, right? But yeah, um, yeah that's also an approach where you can f maybe find like a middle ground between those two approaches. Oh yeah, of course. So uh, talking about uh, the server-side part, I think one of the uh, things that a lot of people have never heard about is SSI and ESI, and maybe some people heard about SSI like a, a lot of years ago. Uh, can you uh, first explain what ESI and SSI are? Yeah, so SSI and ESI are uh, server-side include and edge-side include. Uh, those are markup language that basically are using a mechanism called transclusion, Transclusion basically is an algorithm. What it does is very simple. You have a placeholder element that when is uh, parsed by the engine is going to be replaced by uh, more concrete elements that, for instance, imagine that you have, uh, I don't know, uh, a cart element. Uh, that you are describing with that placeholder, and then when it times when the, the engine is going to uh, parse that um, markup uh, element, is going to replace that with a div element, and maybe uh, I don't know an image that represents the icon and and some links. So that that is basically uh, what it means. Uh, those are running either edge side include on on the CDN level uh, or server side include on the server level. And uh, um, I think server-side include is a very quite old technology, uh, so it's not nothing revolutionary, but allows you to uh, work at the server side and compose multiple elements because there are uh, servers like um, Nginx, for instance, that are allows allowing you to uh, use this technique for composing your page and provide a final output for for the user. On the edge side, include instead is a markup language that was created back in the days by Akamai and Oracle and a few other companies um, that um, is available in certain uh, CDNs providers and not all of them. And the other problem is uh, the one that are supporting ESI um, sometimes are not even uh, supporting the full uh, implementation. Therefore, if you think about a multi-CDN strategy, probably is not feasible, or if you are thinking to migrate from uh, one CDN that has the full um, fledge of, of specification implemented to another one, you might think twice because you don't know if uh, everything is supported. The other problem of uh, ESI more than SSI is the developer experience uh, that I think is quite important. In ESI, uh, there aren't many companies that are providing a smooth developer experience so you need to test with um with against your your cdn uh, akamai for instance is providing a, a, co a docker container that basically allows you to test on your um, laptop how or as sort of how the, the, the CDN node in Akamai would render your application, but it's the only company currently that I am aware uh, that is doing something like that. Uh, usually these techniques I have seen uh, use where... Um, where you have, let's say, more static content on the UI. So, for instance, uh, IKEA used edge side include uh, back in the days for their catalog, and everything was extremely 
static. They were using HSL include. And when they started to have dynamicity or they, they wanted dynamic content or interactivity, they supplement HSL include with client side include. That the, there are some libraries available in JavaScript that basically uh, they do exactly the same thing using Trustfusion, but on the client side. So you can mix and match those and uh, provide interactivity as well, uh, high cacheability that, and, and also uh, let's say span the the, um, um, the load across multiple edge nodes instead of going every time to to the origin that usually the origin are way less than all the CDN nodes uh, that are available in any cloud provider. Very cool. So one thing I noticed when I I read the book uh, is uh, that one uh, approach that we at InnoQ use a lot that um, is very focused on vertical splits is not really described in the book. So I wanted to get your opinion where you fit it into your f frame of mind, right? So I added it to this uh, uh, as well. Um, so um, a few years ago, we wrote this um, um, yeah, guideline uh, called self-contained systems, uh, where we describe how you can uh, integrate multiple vertical Vert vertical splits into one system, right? And there we focused a lot on server-side routing uh, or edge-side routing. I don't make a big distinction between those two. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, uh, you each of those systems delivers its own front-end, right? So it's uh, entire stack from uh, from uh, database to front-end, right? Uh, and we integrate those systems with things that we already mentioned, like transclusions or also components uh, in the other system, uh, both transclusions on uh, with ESI or also client-side transclusions that you just mentioned, uh, and also simple things like links between those two systems, right? So they are really uh, independently, um, uh, yeah, deployable, right? They are uh, manageable by, by one team. Where would you put that into your uh, frame of reference? But in that case, uh, um, I would say, uh, are we in front of microfrontends? Because the reality is, uh, yes, uh, you divide by system, but uh, if if we say that everything that is divided by multiple systems that are rendered on the client side might represent microfrontend, then where is the distinction between a single page application or microfrontends or whatever it is? So the, I think the distinction on microfrontends is the fact that you have a, a map with uh, uh, with the business domain, and then you can go more granular or whatever. The fact that the, and you have like an application shell that I think is one key distinction from from Microfrontends and other other implementation. In your case, you are dividing more in, in a modular monolith fashion, where you divide some verticals that might or not represent a domain, and then you are basically linking and using web standards for 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 moving to, between between the shoes. I think I'm not even sure that I would cate uh, categorize as, as microfrontends. That's good to know because I just wanted to like uh, understand where you, you see the distinction because uh, in the past uh, I saw um, descriptions of microfrontends where this would be part of it and other parts where this would not be part of it, right? So uh, it's always good to like get a good frame of reference because it's a different approach to it that solves some of the same problems because you still yes. can deploy independently and so on. Uh, but uh, yeah, goes a different route. Okay, so that's that's good to know. That's helped me a lot. Um, okay, so um, one thing that you also described in your book uh, is the whole topic of the backend structure. So how is the backend structured to allow access 
from the front end. And you outlined three ways, API gateways, BFFs, and service dictionaries. Can you just give us a brief overview of those three approaches and uh, where you see them fit? Sure. Uh, we start with the service dictionary that probably uh, is nothing new, but uh, I think is very helpful. So a way that uh, I found uh, helpful to decouple microphone tents from the endpoints that allow basically to run independently the backend parts with the frontend part is injecting basically to the microphone tents the list of endpoints to, to use with a dictionary basically of services that are available. That allows uh, basically to um, to a microphone tent to pick the service that they need. Uh, and also potentially you can do something even smarter. And every time the microphone tent is requesting a specific service dictionary, you serve a list of, uh, of endpoints that are useful for that version of the microphone tents. That allows, for instance, if you work with API control first, where you maintain the same uh, the same. Uh, um, Code and the same uh, um, contract uh, between uh, between the API. Uh, then you can evolve independently the application. You don't even have to uh, care about injecting them in CI/CD as I have seen before, or even create a library that is loading inside the microphone tents for handling this part. Because when you have this kind of information that are loaded, you might risk that you, uh, instead of having all the microphone tents using a specific version of the APIs, you have certain microphone tents that are using a version, some others uh, another version, and then you need to coordinate the, the redeployment of this shared library that is uh, a pain, uh, especially in large organizations. So this one is just around time way for handling that is as simple as a JSON schema uh, or a JSON, uh, a JSON that is providing a list of endpoints that are specific for a microphone tent. Um, in the case of uh, API Gateway, uh, API Gateway is <clears throat> well-known way for exposing APIs uh, in especially in microservices world uh, and in that case uh, you have like your um, your endpoint that are uh, you, you can let's say have behind an API gateway wherever you want portion of monolith and the rest of microservices or microservices completely up to you but for the client uh, it's not a big deal and and that basically also uh, might help where people are saying oh if we work with microservices and microphone and we need to have cross-functional teams. Uh, it's not true because you can, at the end of the day, you can use APIs as a nice way for communicating between teams, front and back end, and uh, maintain the independence of these two layers. Then there are people that argue, but I want to have um, some uh, uh, work that is handled by one team only that can deliver a feature independently and create, uh, uh, let's say, value for the customers. And I agree that is the favorite way also for me. But there are certain situations like you cannot do that. For instance, in my previous company, we had roughly 40 different targets on the front end we need to, to uh, manage and with different uh, technologies. So if I have to create a team that can deliver a feature end-to-end -end without creating first-class uh, citizenship inside, inside my teams, I need to have a team of 15, 20 people. That is not manageable at all. It doesn't perform. So instead, if we divide, in that case, in front and back end, you can have, let's say, uh, more interaction between front end and back end teams. But at the end, if you work well with API contract first, uh, you you reduce basically the, this type of interaction that can work independently against the same API contract. That is not changing every day. Um, 
And the last one is backend for frontend, uh, where uh, backend for frontend basically is a pattern that allows you to usually a frontend uh, team to create a layer that is in between the APIs and the frontend, uh, and they are able to uh, use the APIs that they want, put them together, and serve to their client. Usually, are divided by um, by um, device. So you have like maybe a mobile backend for frontend, one web, etc. But I have seen also uh, people that are dividing per domain. So instead of having uh, one per device, you have like one for, I don't know, the catalog uh, and one for authentication. And you handle that in, in, in that way. It really depends how you want to, uh, how complex is the application, how large is the application, how you are structured. But backend for frontend uh, provides a benefit where <clears throat> also if someone is updating, um, let's say, um, an API uh, and you're not aware for that for any given reason, uh, it's not going to cause a cascade effect on the client side. So you can slowly but steady migrate your API on, on the um on the on the back end for front end layer and also aggregate them in a way that the client can do less round trips and provide a better experience for the users. And and sometimes I have seen use REST, sometimes I've seen use GraphQL uh, for for these um, for this implementation. It's completely up to uh, to the team. And often I have also seen one backend for frontend uh, written with GraphQL and use schema federation for stitching together the different APIs in a unique layer that the clients can consume either mobile, web, microfrontends, or monolithic application. Where do you see the re responsibility for the BFF? Is it the responsibility of the frontend team that uh, uses it or is it the responsibility of a different team? For me, it would be responsibility of the frontend team uh, Uh, because they are the ones that are using that layer and consuming that layer. So they need to know how to, to handle that. However, I would recommend to have some help from, from the backend teams because there are certain, uh, let's say, topics like scalability, observability, stuff like that, that they have definitely more experience, especially when we are talking about um, building microservices. Very cool. So one thing you already brought up, uh, but I wanted to have as our last topic for the day, uh, is the, the question of uh, feature teams with the component teams. Uh, so how do you see team structure and where do you see it uh, in regards to all the things that we talked about uh, until this point? I don't have a strong preference. I mean, I work in both and I've seen uh, both systems working. Uh, they, I think that the context should drive that decision. As I said before, I had, so let's say, the possibility to work in companies where uh, it was impossible to work with features team and others that I work in features teams and, they, and it was working extremely well. The, the problem there then is um, when you have a limited amount of resource, but the number of features are growing and then you have a feature team that suddenly uh, it becomes a features team. And therefore, you have to handle multiple of them that are touching multiple points and the complexity start to raise. For me, it's very important um, as a tech leadership in general, architects, uh, principal engineers, whatever, some, that we take regular steps back to understand if our model is still valid. Because often companies uh, start in one way and they stick with that despite it's not working. Uh, and then the problem is, oh, but we don't we don't have enough developers, so we don't hire the, the right developers. And in reality, maybe the problem is only how the the communication structure works, how the the company is organized. So either that you pick component of feature team. My suggestion is 
check regularly if that is a model that is still working for your company or uh, if the way how you slice your um, domains is correct. Because as yeah. the company is evolving, your architecture has to evolve with the company. It's not something static. It's completely fluid and, fluid and organic. We need to bear in mind that with the moment that we are designing an application today, in one year time, the things could be completely different with the same people or not because the business drift in towards a different direction from the beginning. And so the assumption and the characteristics of our architecture and the organization structure that we made a year ago are uh, now obsolete and we need to replace them with another way. So don't be afraid to change and switch a model uh, if you see that there are some challenges and, and question yourself. It might be that it, it create a genuine uh, discussion, but questioning the decision that we were making like six months ago, four, month, four months usually is a good time, but six, 12 months ago is definitely one thing that I encourage any company to do. I think those are very good closing words because I think it's very true for a lot of parts of our system that we should question uh, our decisions and also um, think about which architecture really fits our um, needs and uh, maybe at, at the beginning where we are more flexible of changing things, uh, especially uh, uh, change things up when we notice that it doesn't fit us even though we thought that it would. So thank you so much, Luca, for your time and for your insights. Uh, and I wish you a nice day and all our listeners uh, the same. Thank you very much for having me. And it was a pleasure sharing with you my perception of, of Microfront Dance. Uh, I hope that you will enjoy the book. And thank you again for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the GoTo Podcast. Head over to gotopia.tech to discover lots more content from the brightest minds in software development.